sharing our faith and passion for the Lord Jesus Christ with others is a desire of Zion Christian Fellowship. Our prayer is that this message will have a lasting impact on your life and draw you closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. This message is not copyrighted. You are free to make copies for friends and neighbors. We only ask that you copy it in its entirety without alterations or changes. Now unto the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, greetings to everyone in Jesus' name this morning. It is good to be in the house of God to worship the Lord. As it is said, to worship Him in the beauty of holiness. Well, this morning for our message, you could turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And for the sake of the visitors here this morning, uh, we are doing a study of the book of Daniel, preaching through the book here, and we're ready for chapter 7 today. So this will be our portion to consider this morning. Now the scripture makes it clear not, not in this passage, but in other places, it makes it clear that we don't know what will be on the morrow. And it tells us that we should trust a sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. We shouldn't worry about tomorrow or fret or be concerned in the, in the sense of fearful and, and distressed. Uh, but we should... We should put our confidence in God, that God knows what will happen on the morrow. And further, it says that we should not boast about tomorrow and say that we will do thus or so because uh, it may not come to pass the way we think it will, uh, according to our plans. However, in contrast to us not knowing the future, God does know the future. And even gave that as an evidence of his omnipotence and his power and foreknowledge is that he knows the end from the beginning and he can tell uh, men what will come to pass in the future. And then it does come to pass, just like he said. That is in contrast to all the other gods who do not know and cannot hear and cannot speak. And here in this passage of Daniel chapter 7, we have been given information by the providence of God. He has let us know what is to come in the end of days. Now this certainly isn't the complete revelation of, of what all has been shown us, but it, is, it has some very key points. So let's read here in Daniel chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. 
Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens drove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it, and they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it, And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came from forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed, and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed." I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near unto one of them that stood by, and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me, and made me know the interpretation of the things. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, 
which devoured, break in pieces and stamp the residue with his feet. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld in the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings which shall arise. And another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, And think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. And that's as far as we'll read this morning. Now there are a number of topics in this passage here and a multitude of other scriptures that we could look at that parallel what is is said here. We're going to look at some of them, but we'll not have time to look at nearly all that could be considered on this uh, topic. So we have Daniel here with a vision, and he had this vision of four beasts. And they were diverse one from another. It gives a description of what these beasts were like. And it was very troubling to him because some of the things were seemed uh, rather extreme and rather uh, especially the fourth beast. But it also, uh, in throughout this revelation, he was also shown what uh, the Almighty, here it's called, he's called the Ancient of Days, who sits on the throne. And so there's some description of that. And then there is explanation of what these beasts meant, what, what the vision meant. So some of it is interpreted for us. 
And I think it's such a blessing that God has chosen to reveal to us what is to come in the end of time. You think about uh, how little uh, we know about tomorrow, which is almost nothing. We have plans, we have expectations, we have thoughts about what we will do tomorrow. But we also know that there is a God in heaven who oversees everything and perhaps has a different plan than we imagined or thought uh, would come to pass. And we yield to that. Uh, but at the same time, the same God who knows the future and knows everything that is to come also has revealed to us what it will be like at the end of days and what is to come hereafter. Not just in this life, but also in the world to come. And so that should encourage us and, and make it exciting as we study this passage. When Jesus walked the earth, he quoted this passage. We're going to look at several of those. It gave uh, a bit more authority to what Daniel said here as Jesus quoted it and was uh, confirming that it is the word of God. So we're going to look at the various aspects here. We're going to talk about the four beasts and then we're going to talk also about the, uh, the Son of Man as is mentioned here in verse 13. And then we're also going to look at what it says about the saints possessing the kingdom. So first of all, looking at the four beasts, it appears that this would be a very close parallel to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had about the image. And as you recall from chapter 2, that account of how Nebuchadnezzar could not even remember the dream. But it was revealed to Daniel what the dream was and what the interpretation was. So Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of this great image, a metallic image that had a head of gold, a chest of silver, belly and thigh of brass, and legs of iron, and then lastly it had uh, toes that were part iron and part clay. And this kingdom or kingdoms uh, then were struck by this great rock that was hewn out of the mountain without hands and it crushed the image and, and then this rock uh, became this great mountain that filled the whole earth. Well that was then explained in the interpretation that, God, that Daniel received from God, he explained that this image of gold represents kingdoms which are to come and which were present then. The first one, being the head of gold, was Babylon. Or as Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, thou art this head of gold. And so it went on down through. Now as we study this uh, vision that Daniel received, it seems to have those four same uh, principal 
kingdoms in mind. But this time, instead of a metallic image, it is represented by four beasts that come up out of the sea. And it says in verse 4, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And that seems to represent uh, the same thing that the head of gold did on the image. It represents Babylon. And we have other passages uh, in one place. One of the prophets uh, spoke about Babylon as the lion out of the thicket who came to uh, punish Israel. And so Babylon is represented by this lion. It said it was made to stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Seems perhaps alluding to what God did with Nebuchadnezzar in dealing with him in his pride and humbled him. And in the account there, it says, gave him the heart of the beast. And here, in this vision, this beast is given the heart of a man. But it seems to kind of mirror that same uh, picture there. Verse 5, another beast, a second like a bear. Well, there was the Medo-Persian Empire that rose up after Babylon. And that would be represented by the bear. And it says it raised up itself on one side. It seemed to be what we might think of as a bit lopsided. And historically that seems to be true in that there was the Medes and the Persians. They were kind of a combined empire, but one of them was stronger than the other. We'll even see that picture again in the next chapter, but in this account here, the bear raised up on one side seems to represent the Medo-Persian Empire. The third beast was like a leopard. Uh, Had four wings of a fowl, the beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, it's known historically that the Greek Empire followed the Medo-Persian Empire. And while it reigned, uh, Alexander the Great was the ruler for a short time, but he died uh, seemingly at the height of his uh, career or empire. And it was eventually divided among four generals. Uh, Primarily, the kingdom went to four different generals who had uh, served under him and seems to be represented by this beast with four heads. Then we have the fourth beast and while the other beasts seem to have very peculiar aspects to them, this one uh, surpassed them all for what we might use the term bizarre. It was just something that that Daniel had difficulty understanding. It just was such a strange and dreadful beast. Now this passage does not give us the full revelation about this beast. But it's important to note that 
this very same beast is spoken of elsewhere in Daniel, and it's also repeated in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, we have this same beast, uh, and it's said to have had seven heads and ten horns. Here we read about ten horns, and one of the horns being plucked up and replacing three And that's also spoken of elsewhere, this uh, a little horn. Uh, In verse 8, I consider the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn. Now, this beast is, as I mentioned, spoken of several times, and, and there's further revelation given in the other mentions of it. And in In the book of Revelation, we're also given to understand some of what is represented by this beast. For example, as John saw it, it had seven heads and ten horns. And then it was explained to him by the angel that the heads represent kings. Or he also refers to them as mountains, seven mountains. But if you consider... The use of the term mountain in the scripture many times has reference to a kingdom. And if we go back to chapter 2 where we have the picture of the image and the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands struck the image and then that stone became a great mountain which filled the whole earth. That picture parallels what we have here in verse 14. Where to this Son of Man there was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So that is the same picture that we have back in chapter 2 where this stone became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. It's referring to a kingdom that everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus. In Revelation, where it talks about these seven heads being seven mountains, and then also goes further to say they are seven kings. So this beast represents seven kingdoms. I believe sequentially down through time. And then this, um, there are ten horns... And John likewise saw this uh, beast having ten horns. And I would also mention that in Revelation, in chapter 12, where this beast is pictured with seven heads and ten horns, it says very plainly in that passage that this beast represents Satan, that old serpent, the devil. But then in later chapters, such as chapter 13 and again in chapter 17 of Revelation, this beast is mentioned, and it seems to be picturing clearly the end-time Antichrist and the Antichrist kingdom. And I would just point out that there are multiple aspects of this beast, if you will. We can see from... Revelation chapter 12, that it is indeed Satan 
himself who is behind this beast. But there are also earthly kingdoms and even kings, and and as it seems to particularly apply to the end time, Antichrist system empowered by Satan. It is not, uh, or we should just understand that this beast also represents that end time system that is under the dominion of Satan. Now it says here in verse 8, well, no, let's, let's look at verse 7, where it talks about this beast. Behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. Interesting parallel there to this image that Nebuchadnezzar saw where the legs were of iron. Speaks of great strength. It devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Then if you go over in verse 19, when Daniel would know the truth about the fourth beast, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet. Now, if we study carefully that picture, it seems to clearly speak about what we now know in this point in history as the Islamic Caliphate. The Islamic Caliphate kingdom of which the, uh, the Ottoman Empire, which ended in 1924 and had lasted for some hundreds of years prior to that, and ruled over uh, the majority of the Middle East uh, from about the, uh, well, around the 7th century and onward. They were a, a powerful force throughout the Middle East. And this description of the beast parallels very clearly what we see historically in the Islamic Caliphate. They were a a power, a kingdom, that, as it says, it devoured and break in pieces. It was a devouring empire that spread with the use of the sword. They would go into nations and totally dominate them, and a lot of bloodshed, and they would seek to change times and laws, as it says in verse 25, where it's speaking about that little horn. Now that's uh, specifically talking about that little horn and and the the kingdom then, but it's, it's a part of this whole beast picture. And think to change times and laws. And so the Islamic kingdom did that. They have their own calendar. They have their own laws. Um, they Even to this day, they have changed uh, the seven-day week. They have a day of rest, if you will, but they, they uh, do that on Friday. 
different from all other religions or people groups. They, they have their day of, of worship or rest, whatever, on Friday. Uh, they set up their own calendar. And when they take over, they change completely the laws and policies of whatever kingdom they conquer and set up their own laws, their Sharia law, and that becomes the dominant ruling law. Now it says here, or it talks about the little horn. The little horn, as we will see in some subsequent chapters, that this little horn seems to clearly represent the end-time kingdom of the Antichrist. Now it says here that this uh, little horn, in verse 20, well, perhaps before that, in verse 8, it says that a mouth is referring to this little horn, a mouth speaking great things. And then down in verse 20, latter part of the verse, even that, that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. Simply referring to a more fierce or stern uh, countenance. And then it says, I beheld in the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. So this little horn represents the Antichrist. And there are a multitude of places throughout Scripture, including in the New Testament, that talk about this Antichrist figure who speaks great things, blasphemes against God. And that is one of the primary characteristics that's spoken of is how he speaks such great things and swelling words and it's against God and blasphemes God and even blasphemes them which are in heaven. And we recognize that as one of the prominent features of the end time Antichrist. Another thing that's said about this a kingdom, this entity, this king, is that he makes war with the saints and prevails against them. Now that was uh, also said of the beast that John saw in Revelation, that this same entity, this same beast, would make war with the saints and overcome them. Here in this passage in verse 25, it says again, he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. Now here we have a description of the time span in which the Antichrist has power and dominion and in which he makes war against the saints. 
If you go back to chapter 12 of Revelation, where it's talking about this beast, it mentions that he was cast out of heaven, and he was very angry, and he came on the earth, and he sought to make war with the woman, with the seed of the woman, and with, uh, with the servants. It, and it clearly is speaking there about Christians and even the Jews, which were the children of that woman represented by, or representing Israel. And so, in those various passages, it's clear that in the end time, this Antichrist will make war and seek to prevail against the saints of the Most High and against the seed of the woman. Now we see that paralleled if uh, those who have studied what the Islamic end time view is, it uh, gives a clear picture there that Islam believes they will dominate the world eventually and in the end time that they will destroy the Christians and the Jews. They will destroy their, um, destroy them completely. And that seems to be clearly pictured here in the scripture as this beast seeks to make war with the saints. And it's said that it would be for a time, times, the dividing of time. Now that space of time is spoken of a number of places in the scriptures. In Revelation it talks about the two servants of God that will testify for three and a half years. And so we find it repeated several times where it's given in a number of days. It's spoken of as three and a half years. In another place it's spoken of 42 months. And here it's called time, times, and the dividing of time. And in each case, in the various ways it's mentioned, it's that three-and-a-half-year span of time. It's interesting that according to the scriptures and, and calculations, that was the length of time of Christ's ministry. He ministered among men starting from his baptism until his crucifixion uh, was a period of three-and-a-half years. It's just interesting that God knows, and he knows the exact time, the duration, and even though perhaps even now this end time antichrist beast might be seeking to uh, um, amass their power and have their plans and agendas, we don't know for sure, but it's... uh, it seems like we're coming up to the end of time in which we may see in our lifetime these things coming to pass. But in all of that, regardless of their schemes, it is God who decides when is the time and when it isn't. So now having looked at the beasts... Let's turn our attention to this uh, picture 
of the Ancient of Days. And it gives an awesome picture here of this God who is a consuming fire. The Ancient of Days did sit. Now, it's very clear from here and and elsewhere in Scripture that when he uses these terms, everyone of God's people would have recognized that this is referring to to Jehovah God. There wasn't wasn't a question in this wording here. The Ancient of Days who did sit. And Ancient of Days simply means days without measure. Uh, There's no no measuring of when it began. Whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. And I don't understand. We don't, can't probably quite grasp what all he means by wheels. In Ezekiel chapter 1, where Ezekiel had a vision of the throne of God and the colors, it was amazing, and it had wheels and wheels within wheels, and it's just, you know, it's a bit of a word picture that we can't, we just can't quite grasp because we have nothing to compare it to. It does seem as though at times, and perhaps here when he's talking about wheels, as though the throne of God was somewhat likened unto a chariot. Um, And to what extent that might be true, I'm not sure. But we do have passages about God riding in the heavens, uh, making the clouds his chariot, and his throne is in the heavens, and and we're only given a little bit of word pictures to try and, and understand it. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Is this perhaps similar to the river of life that John saw emanating from God, clear as crystal, and having the appearance of fire? And then there was those thousands, thousands ministering unto him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were open. And we have that same picture paralleled in the revelation of John. Where John also mentions these numbers, ten thousand times ten thousand ministering to him. And that they stood before him, they stood before the throne of God, and then the judgment was set. It was like the time when heaven and earth fled away, and there was no place found for them, and all were gathered before the throne of the Almighty for a time of judgment, and the books were open. John says the same thing, the books were open, and the dead were judged out of the things which were in the books. And then it says that I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. 
Now, I would like to just mention here in the picture that's given here and the way it's repeated in the book of Revelation, there is some going back and forth from various points of the, of the narrative. In verse 11, it talks about the beast being slain, his body destroyed, and given to the burning flame. Now that seems in, in the other passages to have occurred in a point of time prior to what was in the verse before where the judgment was set and the books were open. And as we see down in verse 13 then, it goes back to where the Son of Man came in the clouds of heaven. And so, as I understand the scriptures in its various uh, places where this is referred to, we have the picture of Christ coming for the second time, and in doing so, he will come to take dominion, and he will judge the beast, the Antichrist, and as it says in Thessalonians, he will destroy him with the spirit of his mouth and with the brightness of his coming. And in Revelation, it talks about this beast being thrown into the lake of fire at the time when he is judged and Christ comes. And we have that referred to here, his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. And I'm just pointing out that it's not, as we might think, absolutely sequential as we read this passage because it kind of goes from one part of the picture to another, and when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we get a little better sense of maybe, as we think of it, as a time order when all these things come to pass. But I do believe that he is referring to the same primary events and pictures that we read in other places as well. In verse 12, It says, as concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. Now that may seem a bit obscure. I I think it just refers to a contrast about the sudden and destructive end of the last empire where this beast is is judged and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame and then the whole kingdom is completely transferred over to uh, the Son of Man. In contrast to that, the other kingdoms that were spoken of, the other beasts, the first three, even though they were conquered by other nations, some of the effects of that empire and its... uh, policies, its uh, culture and whatever, continued on into the space of time of the other kingdoms. For example, the Greek Empire, uh, which was represented by the third beast here, and a lot of their culture and literature and language was actually transferred to subsequent empires. 
It didn't all just end abruptly, like it seems that the Fourth Empire, uh, at the very end of time, it was ended very abruptly and very completely. And in verse 13, he's continuing his vision of the Almighty, and it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And then he goes on to say how there was given him dominion and glory and so on. I'd like for you to turn with me to the New Testament there in Matthew 24 and then also in Matthew 26. But in Matthew 24, we have Jesus speaking to his disciples, telling them what is to come at the end of days, when these things would come to pass and what they should expect. And in verse 29 of Matthew 24, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Note there is use of the term the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So here is Jesus making reference back to the book of Daniel where the Son of Man will come in the clouds of heaven with power and glory. And he puts it at the very end of time and adds that this will be when the angels go forth and gather together his elect. Now let's turn over to chapter 26 and verse 63. Here we have Jesus now on trial before the council. In verse 63, Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And it seems that he stopped there, which was only the first portion of that prophecy. As we read that in Daniel, what came immediately after was that he was given dominion and a kingdom over all people, nations, languages, that they should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Now, 
Jesus didn't need to say all of the rest of that passage. I think the Sanhedrin uh, would have known very well what came next. They would have been very familiar with the scriptures and they would have known that what Jesus is saying here, if he is the Son of Man who will be coming in the clouds, then what follows next is that all mankind will bow and honor him. And in their minds that could be none other than the Son of God who is also the Son of Man. And in verse 65 you have the reaction of the high priest. Then the high priest rent his clothes saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. So what he's acknowledging there is that they understood it clearly to be speaking of the Son of Man, the one who was promised, the one to whom would be given all dominion and power and glory, and that all people would bow and worship. And as he says in other places, that as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And this is simply what Jesus was referring to here by quoting Daniel. So we know what will happen at the end of time. Better than we know what will happen tomorrow. We know what will happen. There will come a day when every kingdom, people, nations, and languages will serve him. And it will be an everlasting dominion, a kingdom that will not pass away. That is an awesome time to think of. Well now let's turn our attention to what is mentioned several times in this passage and that is that the saints of the Most High will possess the kingdom. Now this has caused a good bit of misunderstanding and controversy in the Christian church for maybe ever since the early church, I'm not sure. Now this concept is spoken of in a number of places, but in this passage is one of the clearest where it specifically says that the saints will possess the kingdom. Now what does that mean in terms of God's kingdom? Uh, Because we have in the New Testament very clear uh, talk about Uh, beginning with what Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you want to enter into the kingdom of God, you must be born again. That's now, today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to be born again. Not, Not in some future kingdom, but in this life is when we need to be born again. Then in the epistles to the, I believe it was to the Colossians, 
Paul said that uh, this Christ has delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. And again, very clearly that happens now. We've been delivered from the power of darkness, translated into the kingdom of God. We enter his kingdom now. So how does that relate to our passage here where he talks about the saints possessing the kingdom? If we've been translated into that kingdom, do we possess that kingdom now? Well, yes, there is a sense in which we do. But there is also a sense, and very clearly alluded to here, that there is a future time when we will realize the fullness of this promise that the saints possess the kingdom. And it's something we need to understand clearly that now is not the time when we see the fullness of this promise about the saints possessing the kingdom. And that is an error that some make uh, that, well, if, if the saints possess the kingdom, then we should be ruling and reigning now and taking dominion, and, and there is a lot of that out there, but that's not what the scripture teaches us here. Now let's look in verse 22. It says, Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Now the use of that phrasing there, the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom, would tell us pretty clearly that there is a time prior when the saints do not possess the kingdom in the sense that he's referring to here. And I believe that what he's referring to here is the time when Christ comes, when that Son of Man comes in the clouds in the power of and glory of his Father and to him is given the dominion. That is the time when the saints possess the kingdom. Now it says here that judgment was given to the saints. Well, let's uh, look at some other passages in the New Testament. Uh, let's start with Matthew chapter 19. And verse 27. Matthew 19, 27. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit 
everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Now the timing there, he mentions in the regeneration. When things are transformed, when things go back to how they should have been in the beginning, when this earth undergoes its renovation, its purging by fire, as he tells us in Second uh, Peter chapter 3 and in other places. At the time of the restitution of all things, as Peter uh, preached to uh, the people there in the book of Acts, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, and we saw that uh, in our text passage there in Daniel 7, where the Son of Man came before the Ancient of Days, and he was given a throne and dominion and power. Then, at that time, ye, speaking to his disciples, shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. A parallel passage, let's read in Luke 22. And beginning in verse 24. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief, as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth? Is not he that sitteth at meat? But I am among you as he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now that part didn't happen yet. The apostles here have not sat on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. But Jesus very clearly said there would be a time uh, when he has his kingdom, when he receives his kingdom, I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father hath appointed unto me. Now the interesting point in this passage is what he said just prior gives us a picture of what it is in this life and what he expects of us in this life. We are not to assume positions of power or seek to be rulers over men. We are to be as servants. Just like Christ came and served men, that's what he's asking of us. And we're not, we're not to seek after lordship over others. 
It shall not be so among you. Let you let all of you be as servants. But then he follows up by saying, this is what is to come. I w- and I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me. And we see that appointment referred to in Daniel chapter 7, where he will become the ruler over all kingdoms. And at that time, his servants then will also rule with him. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus said that blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I understand that passage to be referring to a future time when the meek will actually inherit the earth. Uh, That was spoken of several times in the Old Testament, and Jesus was actually quoting scripture here. But what does it mean? And I have heard some try to explain, well, that means that uh, we are already sort of inheriting the earth. And, well, there's just simply no real definite way that we can say that today the meek are inheriting the earth. Because in many cases they're hated and hunted and despised and, and they're simply viewed as servants, which is what they should be. Servants. So is Jesus, in saying this, that the meek shall inherit the earth, is he referring to a future time? I believe he is. Let's look at several other passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in the context here of men judging what is taking place within the church, he says in verse 2, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life. So there's coming a time in the future when saints will judge the world. I would parallel that with what Jesus said to his disciples, ye shall sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The saints will judge the world. And it would be the parallel time when they shall inherit the earth. And Paul very clearly here contrasts it where he says, uh, how much more things that pertain to this life, which implies that what he said just prior pertains to the next life. And so he's simply telling them that they should have, they should be equipped to make honest and righteous judgment in the things that pertain to this life. Now, let's turn now to Revelation chapter 5, verse 10.
In verse 9, it's, it gives us the setting here about uh, the four and twenty elders saying, Thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. We shall reign on the earth. And now turning over to chapter 20 of Revelation and verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, some have stumbled over this concept in thinking, well, it doesn't seem to be like what Christ taught his disciples to be. But I think we can correctly understand it that he is these specific prophecies and teachings are referring to a time in the future after Christ's return where the saints will judge the world. The saints will sit on thrones and inherit the kingdom that's been prepared for them and has been appointed to them as Jesus received an appointment from his father so he appoints his followers. It is the time when the Twelve disciples will sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And we can look throughout the New Testament which makes it clear that the Gentiles have been grafted in to receive also of the promises that were made to Abraham and to God's people. So if we go back to our text passage in Daniel chapter 7, it uses the term saints. Well, it's not just referring to New Testament saints, but it does include them. It's referring to all of God's people, his chosen ones, the righteous uh, from the kingdom of Israel and uh, down through time, and the righteous who have been grafted into and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. They also will rule and reign with him as it says here in chapter 20, for a thousand years. And it is in this passage, Revelation 20, that we get a, a bit of a picture at the length of time in which we will rule and reign with Christ on the earth. That is when the meek shall inherit the earth. That is when, as it said in chapter 5, we shall reign on the earth. And after that thousand years, it does describe something that changes. Satan is loosed. He seeks to encamp, uh, encircle the camp of the saints and to make war against them. And God will rain down fire from heaven. And then the devil, 
himself will be cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. The beast, as we saw in chapter 7 of Daniel, his body was given to the burning flame. That's when he was cast into the lake of fire. A thousand years later, the devil himself is cast into this lake of fire. And then... um, In the subsequent chapters, we have the description of the new heaven and the new earth. Now some may ask, how how can that be? Why would the saints reign only a thousand years when in Daniel it said that it would be forever and ever? The kingdom would belong to the saints forever and ever, no no end. Why then is it the thousand years? Well, my understanding would be that there is a certain aspect of this reigning with Christ that will last for this thousand years as it's described here. But it's very clear from this passage that this kingdom is not overthrown nor destroyed. It does seem to pass into a second phase where the devil is finally and forever cast into the lake of fire. But we will forever, from the beginning of the millennium, beginning of these thousand years when we sit and reign with Christ, we shall be forever and ever and ever with him. There is no end of his kingdom, and that which shall never be destroyed or overthrown. Um, And I I would acknowledge that some of these things are difficult to understand. They have been misunderstood and corrupted by others, and I don't claim to have all knowledge that pertains to it, but I do have a sense of what what draws together a lot of these scriptures that satisfies me that there is compatibility in these scriptures. If we understand that there will be a time in the life to come where the saints will rule and reign with Christ. But that today is not that time. Today... We are servants, and we labor. We labor because the night cometh when no man can work. He has delivered unto us his goods. He has told us to occupy till he comes. And we are here laboring. We are here serving. We are not seeking to rule and reign over men. We are not seeking to take dominion. That will come in its appointed time. When Christ says, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now again, does that mean that we are not in that kingdom now? No, we are in that kingdom now. And the things that pertain to this life and to this kingdom, we should not mistake them as being just off in some future kingdom. For example... The Sermon on the Mount, some would say, well, that refers to that future kingdom. We can't love our enemies now. 
Well, that's not what Christ taught. He taught us that that's what we should live and do now. And there are promises that pertain to the future life. So let's go back uh, to our text passage. And look at verse 27 and 28. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now, you have probably heard me say most of what I shared today. You've probably heard me say this before. And I hope that it helps settle things in your mind by saying it many times and repeating it and so on. But perhaps you have today or in the past, you have come through a study like this and you kind of shake your head and I just don't see how, how this can all be. How, how does it all fit? What about this verse? What about that verse? Well... It seems like Daniel had much the same thoughts. To think about this strange beast and the kingdom that was to come that would actually um, wear out the saints of the Most High and, and overcome them, that's, that's not pleasant to think about. It's troubling. How can this be? What? What will it really be like? And will I be one of those who are uh, put to death or worn out by this evil beast empire? Well, I guess my closing admonition is We don't have to understand it all. Not today, not tomorrow. Maybe next month we'll understand more than we do today. But we need to be prepared. We need to be a people that know the promises of God and that seek to understand and seek to guide our lives accordingly. They that know their God shall do exploits. And so... Let's not be discouraged if we can't put together a comprehensive picture of what it's going to be like or where this verse fits in and that verse and how is it really going to be. We're only given snapshots. We're only given portions of it. And some of that is not thoroughly explained. Some of it pertains to things that have, have no precedent. It's not, it's not been known before. 
So let's not be discouraged, but rather encouraged that God has told us many and glorious promises about what is to come. And we can rest in that. And I will close with that.